0: Let us pray. God, of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So we uh, have a wedding coming up in our family. Uh, Some of you know our older daughter, Julia, and her fiancé, Chris Hamilton, are getting married January 20th back in Washington, D.C., And we are all very excited. It has been great fun to get to know Chris. He's a terrific guy. It's been fun to watch their relationship begin and grow and blossom, and we are all looking forward to celebrating with them just a little over two months from now. They got uh, engaged a year ago, last November, and ever since they have been planning for this wedding day. And weddings are, they're odd things because it's a party basically that we throw for ourselves on one of the most important days of our lives, and there is a lot to do, there's a wedding coordinator to hire, there's a, a, a right location to scout out, there's a dress to buy, a photographer to select, a caterer to select, a florist to select, invitations to create, decisions about how far into the family tree to send those invitations, and then to actually pop them in the mail. And if you've ever planned a wedding, your experience might be like uh, the experience that Molly and I had when we got married 34 years ago, which is there comes a point in that process when you hold in, in, your, in your soul two, and you hold these simultaneously, two completely contradictory emotions. On the one hand, there's a deep, dark feeling that there is just not enough Time. There are too many details, there are too many decisions, there are too many expectations, there's too many people involved, there's too many competing priorities, it's all coming too fast, there is not enough time, and simultaneously, the, same feel, the, the feeling that this is taking way too long, there is way too much time, it feels like the wedding day is never going to get here. I remember saying to Molly, why is it taking so long? Why are we waiting? I know at least once I proposed to her, we were living in Pasadena at the time, let's go to Vegas. We could drive there today. We could get there before midnight. We could be married today. We could even do it in the Elvis Chapel because I knew that her parents would be really upset with us, but her mom's a big Elvis fan, so I figured we'd at least have that, <laughs> at least have that on our side. So there's these two competing feelings. There's not enough time. There's too much time. Now, we didn't elope. We, we did wait, and uh, on August 26, 1989, we got married, and we have lived happily ever after so far anyway. There's also a wedding coming up in this story that we've heard today from Matthew 25, and of course, this is an ancient story. It's set in a different time, in a different culture. There were different wedding customs back then. And honestly, the details of those customs are not really very important, so I'm not going to talk about them. But what is interesting to me is that across all of those centuries, there are those same two emotions in this story, right? There is too much time. There are ten bridesmaids who are waiting. The groom has been delayed. They wait. They wait some more. Finally, they all fall asleep. And then suddenly there is not enough time. Look, here comes the groom, and everyone rustles awake, and they start to light their their lanterns, and five don't have oil, and they ask for help, and they don't get it, and they're told to go buy some, and it's a mad scramble. The result is that the five wise ones are welcomed to the party, and the five foolish ones are left out in the cold. Now, this this is a parable, a parable that Jesus told. And so this is more than just an ancient couple's curious wedding story that they're going to tell to their kids down through the years. There's a point to this. There's a point to this story. And to get to the point, it's helpful to know that that in the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, a wedding is a common metaphor. Wedding is a metaphor that speaks, first of all, of, of the covenantal love of God for God's people. And so in the Hebrew scriptures, what we in the church call the Old Testament, Uh, God is sometimes portrayed as a groom and the people of Israel are portrayed as the bride. And it's a metaphor then that speaks of the depth of God's love that is faithful uh, and personal and fierce and gracious and enduring. And even when Israel is unfaithful, God's love persists. Second, this metaphor of a wedding Uh, points toward the future. Something's coming up. Something is going to happen. Theologians would call this an eschatological metaphor. It points ahead to the end. It points ahead to the climax of history. Something is going to happen, and like a a marriage, it's going to change life completely. And we hear that at the start of our reading today, verse 1, when Jesus says, then, then The kingdom of heaven will be like this. Then, looking ahead, right, to the end. Then the kingdom, the kingdom, the beloved community will come, and it will look like this. Then God's will will be done on earth as in heaven. Jesus is pointing ahead to that time, pointing ahead to the time when people will love God, when people will love one another, when people will love the earth in the way that God has loved us and all of creation. He's pointing to that time, When by the power of that love, we uh, and all creation will be made whole and holy. That's the hope. That's the promise. That's the future. That's the dream that Jesus in his life and death and resurrection makes possible. But it's a dream that has been delayed. Like the groom in the parable. And we're left with either too much time or not enough time. It's a dream that's been delayed. And that's why Jesus told this story. And it's why we read this story still. We want to hope. We want to believe. We want to trust in this dream of a beloved community. But when the dream is delayed, it can be hard to hold on to hope. And we are not unlike the bridesmaids. Often we have those same two contradictory feelings. We often have the feeling that it's taking too long, that it's taking too much time. Why does, why does racial healing, why does racial justice, why does recon, racial reconciliation take so long in this country? With all the advances of our time, why are there still so many people who are so poor and so vulnerable? Why are there people who still don't have safe places to call home? Why are the people who don't have access to the health care they need? Why is it taking so long? And simultaneously, it feels like there is not enough time. We're not making enough progress, not fast enough on climate change, for example. There's not enough time to change minds and change systems and change the trajectory of the Earth's climate. Every day when I read the news, I have this feeling there's just not enough time to protect people in Gaza right now. Not enough time to undo generations of oppression and persecution toward both Palestinians and Jewish people. Not enough time to change the hearts and minds and policies of leaders in our country. What do we do while we wait? How do we hold on to hope when the dream is delayed? And it's not just in the sort of big frame picture of our life in the world. I mean, it's true in our particular lives too, right? Whether it's something we're looking forward to with much joy, like waiting for a married life to get started, or maybe it's something harder. Maybe waiting while someone we love is dying. Or waiting because we don't have a lot of control over the big decisions that impact our lives. or Waiting for light at the end of a dark tunnel of depression, or anxiety, or grief. How do we live when the dream of lives of love and purpose and joy has been delayed. Well, in this parable, Jesus asks us to trust. Jesus asks us to trust him, to trust that by following him daily uh, and practically and persistently that we become part of the shared history that God intends for the whole creation, to trust that what he promises will come true, That's how we hold on to hope when the dream has been delayed. And to be clear, hope is different from optimism. I am not very optimistic about much at all. I'm I'm actually quite pessimistic about human nature because we seem to have an endless capacity to lie and cheat and steal. I'm pretty pessimistic about our collective ability to respond to climate change. I'm pessimistic that the leaders of Hamas or the Israeli Defense Forces or the U.S. are going to make choices that move toward a lasting and just peace for all. And if I'm honest, I'm pretty pessimistic about myself, too. I mean, on Sundays, you really get my A-game, and I think that's probably true for most of us who are here. Uh, Actually, Sunday after I go home, as well as Monday and Tuesday and all the rest of the week, I can at times be impatient. I can be unkind. Uh, I get selfish, I get cynical, I get apathetic. Uh, You can ask my wife and kids. They've seen the C minus version of me. It's not that great. I'm pessimistic. But the thing is, pessimism and optimism, which are really just the flip side of the very same coin, those are both different from hope. And here I'm drawn from uh, a German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, he wrote a very famous book called The Theology of Hope. And Moltmann is the one who uh, makes a very helpful distinction. He points out that optimism and pessimism are really just extrapolations of the past. We look and see what happened in the past and then we assume that's gonna hold going forward into the future. So for example, uh, our, our older daughter Julia, the one who's gonna get married. When she was four, we discovered that she knew how to read and the way we discovered it is her grandmother was reading a book to her and she skipped a line and Julia stopped her and said, hold it, you missed it. And then she read the line out loud And so we knew that she could read at four. Now, when she could read at four, I was super optimistic that when she got to kindergarten, she was gonna nail it, and she did. And all the way through grad school, she nailed it. I had good reason to be optimistic. The past extrapolated into that future, which is exactly why I'm pessimistic about a lot of other things. I've seen the past. I expect the future is just gonna hold more of the same. Optimism and pessimism are extrapolations of the past into the future. But hope is different. Hope is grounded in the future. And Jesus promises that the future belongs to God. That's that quote I sent out in the email this week from Moltmann. We have to learn as Christians that we're not pushed through life by the past. We are pulled by the future. And the future belongs to God. The future belongs to God. That's our hope, that God is reconciling the world, that God is making all things new, that God is bending the arc of history toward love and toward justice, bending it toward the dream of the beloved community. That's how we can be pessimistic and frustrated and exasperated and angry and still live with hope. In this parable, Jesus invites us to live with hope, to follow Him daily and practically and persistently, trusting that we are becoming part of what God intends for us and for the whole creation. So the five wise bridemaids, despite the bullet excuse me despite the delay, despite falling asleep, are ready. When the time comes, they're prepared to act, and they're welcome to the great party at the end. That's what hope looks like, being ready to follow Jesus whenever the time comes. Now, to be clear, there is also judgment in this parable, right? Jesus warns of judgment. The five foolish ones aren't ready, and they're left out. And that sounds pretty harsh. The truth is, though, that our choices, the choices we make, matter. The way we treat people, what we do with our time, who we choose to listen to, how we spend our money, all of those those choices that we make daily set a trajectory for our lives. They create a momentum that carries us along. And those choices can orient us more and more in the direction of Jesus, his way, his truth, his life, or they can send us off in other directions that leave us a great distance from what God intends, from what God is doing. I think of uh, something uh, Albert Camus wrote, he was a French philosopher, uh, existentialist philosopher. He wrote, don't wait for the last judgment. It takes place every day. Don't wait for judgment day. Every day is judgment day. What we do, the choices we make matter. When we're waiting, when we're stuck, when the dream is delayed. Jesus asks us to trust him. And that kind of trust in Jesus begins where trust begins in any of our relationships. I mean, ask yourself, why do you trust the people that you trust in your life? Why do you trust anyone in your life? My guess is it's because you've known them. You've had experience with them. You've seen their character their integrity, their faithfulness, their kindness, their care. That's why I trust Jesus, or at least that's why I'm striving to trust Jesus, to believe Jesus, to believe in Jesus, because I have felt the love of Christ, even in times when I haven't been all that lovable. I've experienced the grace of Jesus, who's, who's helped me learn how to forgive myself, and usually we're the hardest ones to forgive, aren't we? I trust Jesus because there have been moments of of winsome joy and deep peace that push back hard against my pessimism and my apathy and my cynicism. And the vision that Jesus has in the Gospels, the vision of the beloved community, I find that to be so compelling that I can't not believe it's true. The other thing that helps me trust in Jesus is seeing others who are striving to live out their faith in Jesus, seeing people's generosity and their commitment to service, seeing people's readiness to be truthful even when it's not convenient or expedient, seeing people's fierce commitment to doing justice and seeking peace. That's why I'm glad to be part of this congregation because your faith strengthens mine. You help me believe. You help me live with hope. So even as we wait and wonder and wish that God's future would come more quickly, in the the moments when there is not enough time to do what needs to be done, in the moments when there is too much time and there's too much delay, let us open our hearts and our souls and our minds to the presence of God's Spirit, who we trust is making us and making all things whole and holy. I want to close with a prayer. It's a poem written by Kim Stern. So let us pray. Days pass and years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. God, fill our eyes with seeing and our minds with knowing. Let there be moments when your presence, like lightning, illumines the darkness in which we walk. Help us to see, wherever we gaze, that the bush burns unconsumed and we, clay touched by God, will reach out for holiness and exclaim in wonder how filled with awe is this place. Blessed is the eternal one, the holy God. Amen.